Good afternoon, everybody. How we doing? Come on, we can be a little more excited than that. Are you glad to be in church this morning? Come on. That's it, that's it. Well, welcome to Connect Church. My name is Pastor Derek. If you don't know who I am, you're here for the first time. I'm so glad that you're here. Excited to be with you. Um, this is my third service today, and, you, and you're going to get my best. Amen? So because you're going to shout me down, you're going to talk me up, you're going to just talk back at me in, in the Christian way. And it's going to be good. Amen? Amen. Can we welcome all our online viewers and also our Framingham location? Can we give them a big hand over there? Come on. Praise the Lord. We're so glad that uh, you're all with us in church on Sunday. We are in a series that we've entitled The Problem of God, but it's based on this book that I read by Pastor Mark Clark. I've been kind of, I rarely promote books, but I've been promoting this book because it was a really um, challenging, um, beneficial, uh, build my faith um, kind of a book. And Mark Clark was an atheist uh, who converted to Christianity in his pursuit of kind of disproving things. He, and he, in his skepticism and in his doubts, what most people do is they're skeptics, but they don't lean into their skepticism. What happens with most people is we have doubts, but we don't uh, pursue the truth behind those issues that we have. And so um, he basically identified in his spiritual journey, thank you, son, in his spiritual journey that there are problems that people have with God. There are these obstacles that keep us from relationship with God. And he, he narrowed it down to about 10. Are there more problems people have with God? Absolutely. Uh, but he narrowed it to about 10 in this book. And we've been addressing uh, each week uh, one of those problems. And this is, this is actually week six of a series on the problem of God. So how many have been here the whole time? Perfect attendance. Whoo! Look at that. Okay, all of you guys get a sticker on your way out after church today. Um, I'm pretty sure about that. Maybe. I don't know. But anyway, uh, we're actually going to do one more next week. Next week, I'm going to talk about the problem of sex. So it's either going to be packed or nobody's going to be here next week. I don't know which. Or, or all the men will be here They'll be, and all the ladies will be at home and all the men will be like, come on, come on, give me some good notes, you know, to go home with so I can tell her about this. She's always telling me stuff. I get to tell her. Okay, that's funny. Whatever. Um, <laughs> But today, um, we're going we're gonna to dig into really what um, is, it's one of the top 10 problems that people have with God. And that's the problem of the Bible. Kind of going to deal with, you know, how do we know it's true? The veracity of, of the scriptures. And, and, and this series has is, is, been intense. I had one person say to me um, that this series is kind of intense and it's intellectual and it's been challenging. And, and I just, I just want to say I'm sorry on behalf of all Christian leaders that are answering questions no one's asking. You guys didn't get that. In other words, people are coming to church, and the stuff that we're hearing about is not relevant to our life. It's not relevant to our faith. It's not relevant uh, to um, some of the obstacles we have with God. So how many know it's great and refreshing to be able to go somewhere where we're going to talk about things that actually can help us in our relationship with God, that can help us in our relationship with our families, that can help us in our finances, that can help us get through some of our obstacles with God so we can get through some of the obstacles in our life. Amen? So that's what this has been about as we're going forward. In fact, we can't do it all like we just can't stay in this series for a year. And I'm not sure exactly why we can't, but anyway, we can't. Um, but um, we have a brother in our church uh, who's really, he's kind of on an uh, accelerated growth rate. And he's a brilliant kind of uh, man who, who's dug into some of these subjects, even deeper than your pastor probably, even deeper than pastor, maybe not deeper than Pastor Mark. He's better in apologetics than me. But the point is, 
um, he, he's going to do a small group here on Wednesday nights from 7 to 9 p.m., I think, or 7 beyond, and um, it's going to be called The Science of God. So some of you had questions, and you were flooding kind of my social media with questions, and um, he's going to help us kind of continue this dialogue. So if when we were talking about the problem of science, it was really, uh, I was really getting a lot of messages. And so he's going to dig into subjects like creation, prophecy, uh, you know, kind of post-flood. We're going to deal with some of the, uh, the, the, the deeper into the evolution topics and things like that. So if you're interested in a short, within the current uh, small group semester, short little, I think it's like four weeks, Pastor Mark, a four-week small group, that's going to be happening right here in the auditorium uh, Wednesday night at uh, 7 p.m., Pastor? Yes, so I got that right. So just want to let you guys know about that uh, because um, today, as I talk about the Bible, there'll be a lot of questions that I can't answer. In fact, I want to give you a little uh, extra resource for your notes. So write this down. If you want to dig into this, this is bonus, okay? Um, this is a guy that I follow. Uh, the website is R-Z-I-M, R as in Robert, Z as in Zebra, I as in International, M as in your mama, rzim.org, okay? Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. He is the number one Christian apologist in the world. I highly recommend that you check him out. Anything that he does, I rarely say that about a person, but I just have great respect for him in, in most things that I've discovered about him. The other person or book, this would be a book, not so much a website, but you could go to his website as well. He is a well-known theologian named Josh McDowell. And I think every Christian at some point in their spiritual journey should get this book. It's called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. So I just want you to have those. Those are just great references and resources um, as I um, begin my message. Now, my message is going to have three points in it. So this will be a very, very simple um, explanation of how you can trust the Bible as true. Are you ready? Is everybody ready? Yes. Turn to your neighbor and say, are you ready? Turn in your second choice and say, get ready. Okay, get ready. All right. Okay, so how can I know the Bible is true? Here's kind of your first fill in the blank. The, the way you can know the Bible is true is you got to know the Bible. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Now, this will seem a little silly to you at first, maybe a little foolish uh, perhaps, but, um, but I know the Bible is true because the Bible says so. Did you get that? That's pretty profound, isn't it? When I was a kid growing up in church, we used to sing a song, Jesus loves me, this I know. Man, we got some Christians in the house here. That's good. That's good. Yeah, the Bible tells you so. So uh, I, I believe the Bible because Jesus believed in the Bible. And this may not help some people who are in a what I call pre-believer state. You're seeking, you're searching. You haven't found all the answers yet. I understand that. But Jesus was constantly quoting the Bible. Uh, when he was alive, there was about three-quarters of the scriptures uh, that had been um, um, written, and he was quoting them all the time. He, he referenced them. Uh, by referencing them, he in turn validated the scriptures. In fact, he used the scriptures um, to, to help him with his problems in life. In fact, in three different occasions within the New Testament, he said, it is written. When, when the enemy came against him, Satan came against him to tempt him. He said, it is written, it is written, it is written, Luke 4, Matthew 4, etc., um, he used the word of God, which is oftentimes referred to as a weapon, the sword of the spirit. He used it as a weapon against the enemy. The word of God, Jesus validated, Jesus referred to, Jesus used as a tool to overcome in this life. And so he authenticates it. And so some people 
um, a lot of people like Jesus, but then they have problems with the Bible. And I would just say to you kindly, uh, that's jacked up. Isn't that great? You can come to church and somebody say, if you love Jesus, but you have problems with the Bible, you're jacked up. Well, that's what's happening right now. Because Jesus trusted the Bible. In fact, Jesus is the Bible. And I'll show you that in just a little bit. He is the word of God. All right? In fact, so, so, you, so if you trust Jesus, he trusted the Bible, so you should trust the Bible. Is everybody with me out there? Now, he said this. Jesus said, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter. He's really getting, you know particular here, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything's accomplished. What an incredible book that everything, not only that is written, will be done. It's not an ordinary book. Can I have an amen? This is a very, this is a very special, special book. And so when you look at things that you read, sometimes you determine because you don't understand something, you don't agree with something. Last week I was talking, we were talking about the problem of exclusivity um, what happens a lot of times is because something doesn't feel right, we call it wrong. But that's not always true. Something doesn't feel good, we'd, we call it bad for us. Just So uh, if that's the case, we wouldn't eat vegetables. If that's the case, we wouldn't uh, do some things that are necessary in the business world. It's not true. Here's another aspect of this idea is that just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. We have to be careful about that. I don't understand... All, you know, I've been studying the brain and how it works. There's a lot of things I don't understand about it. I don't understand digestion, but I keep on eating. <laughs> I don't understand my wife sometimes, but I keep chasing her. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm talking about, okay? So here's a profound statement I'm getting ready to make. If you don't understand, it's because you don't understand. That's a drop-the-mic moment right there, everybody. In other words, don't make the next connection. I don't understand, therefore it's wrong. It's not true. No, you just don't understand something, and in particular when it has to do with God and God's Word. Is everybody with me? Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, this is kind of the main text of the day. All Scripture is inspired. Everybody say inspired. inspired. By God. We'll come back to that and unpack that word in a second. But there's four things that Scripture does for us very clearly. It's useful for teaching, number one. Showing people what is wrong in their lives for correcting faults and for teaching how to live right. Using the scriptures, the person who serves God will be capable as a result having all that is needed to do in every good work. What is this saying? It's saying in all aspects of life, the word works. The word of God works. It'll help you in your marriage. It'll help you in family life. It'll help you in business. It's going to help you in decision making. It's going to help you to determine your future. It's going to help you overcome your hurts, your habits, your hangups. The Bible is awesome. The Bible's awesome. Can I get an amen or a witness from somebody out there, okay? And so you should put it to the test. I was at the gym a few weeks ago, and um, uh, this girl came up to me, and she said, PD, uh, she heard me talking to somebody else, and she kind of was creeping on that conversation, and she says, uh, PD, and she called me PD because I've trained everybody in my gym to call me Pastor or PD. So they'll say, what's your name? I said, my name's Derek, but everybody calls me PD. What's PD stand for? I said, Pastor Disaster. And they laugh like that. And then I say, you know, I'm, just, I'm a pastor. And they go, really? Wow, you don't really kind of, yeah, I wouldn't have thought that. I, well, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? And just because I'm jacked doesn't mean I'm not a pastor. <laughs> Come on. And they love it. And so anyway, but I'm just training them all. I'm a pastor of this whole gym. So they always come over. So this one girl, she's listening in on the conversation. She comes back over. She goes, Pete, don't you think the world's changed? Don't you think the world's changed? Don't you think the Bible's not relevant to today? 
And I said, well, so what are you saying? What are you saying? You're saying because the world, the world has changed, then you're saying the word had to change. See, what we're doing is we're trying to make the word conform to the world when the world was designed to conform to the word. Can I have a witness out there on that, all right? Dwight L. Moody uh, said that the Bible wasn't for our information but for our transformation. We're not supposed to look at the word and, and, and the Bible as a window where we look through it and monitor and manage and critique and criticize and judge everybody else's behavior, monitor everybody else's sin. The word of God was, the Bible was always meant to be a mirror for our life to go back to these areas of our life as a mirror and say, it's going to teach me something. What's the word trying to teach me right now? What's the word trying to show me that's wrong in my life that needs to change? How does it help me with the things and correct the things and redirect the things in my life? How does it teach me right from wrong? The word's a mirror for my life, not a window into everybody else's life. Amen? And so when you, when you begin to say, I don't trust the Bible, you're saying you trust yourself, and that also equals you don't trust Jesus. Okay? So now... I told you we talked about this word inspired. That word inspired, behind that English word here, is, is, there's a Greek language behind this. So this is not the original language it was written in. This is the translated, transliteration of the Greek language. The Greek word for inspired is theonoustos. It, theo, God, noustos, breathed. So what we're saying here is this book, this Bible, is not an ordinary book. It's theos... Actually, it's through the nostrils of God, but if I do that, I'm afraid a booger will come out of my nose, so I'm not going to do that. This is just what came in my head, so I thought I'd say it. But it's, 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 right, it's right out of the nostrils of God. It was inspired from God. So this isn't just like letter on, on, on a paper. This is, this is, it's different. John 6, 63, it's not in your notes. It says, these words are spirit and life. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, the word of God is living and active. It's different. It's just not an ordinary book, everybody. It's inspired by God. It's inspired by God. And it's alive and active if we live and act on it. The only reason, the only way this becomes something different than another book is if you take this God-breathed spirit and life into you and you obey it. When you obey it, you will be alive. You'll be different. You'll be transformed. Is everybody with me out there? And I think what we need more than any other time in our life in a, in a world that's a shifting culture. I've watched in my lifetime, just in, a, just in a generation, the culture shift multiple times away from a moral compass, away from a moral standard, away from an absolute truth. I believe it is still possible in a shifting culture to submit to, subscribe to, obey and follow an absolute truth. We just have to learn how to do it with grace and truth. We, just with, we have to learn how to ap approach things right. And Jesus did that amazing. Jesus was the physical representation, the embodiment of truth on the earth and sinners flocked to him. People wanted to talk to him. People wanted to be around him. Did he compromise and change with the times? No, he changed the times that he was in because he knew how to do it with the truth, with grace, spirit, with life. Does that make sense to everybody out there? I'm just kind of getting going on that, but I don't know why it's getting me all fired up. But, but when, you, when you see this, this, this behind that word, Theonustis is, is the root word of that is air. Pneuma. Pneuma. And so when you speak, you use air. When you use words, you have to use air. 
You have to breathe. Now, some of you go a long time without taking a breath. That's funny. That's funny whether you guys realize that or not. But, but there's, there's, there's something alive in the word of God. I want you to see that. Now, let's move on. In 2 Peter chapter 1, in your notes, it says, look at this. Most of all, you must understand something. So Peter's he's basically saying this is a priority. Get ready. No, I want you to get this. No prophecy in the scriptures ever comes from the prophets. So this is referring to the, word, the written word of God. Nothing in the written word of God ever comes from the prophet's own interpretation. No prophecy, according, this is referencing the scriptures now, comes from what, not what a person wanted to say, but people led by the Holy Spirit spoke words from God. So here's, here's, here's what he's saying here. He's saying God spoke and men wrote. What was inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit. So when you look at your, when you, you just need to understand, when you read this, Man wrote it, but it was God-inspired. Man had the pen, but God gave the inspiration for every... Hey, I, for some of you, I'm, I've written different number, a certain number of songs, 6 to 12 songs in my lifetime. I was a worship leader for 14 years. <clears throat> and all of those songs were not constructed by my own ability. They were just, I sat down, so I can relate to this to a certain point. I sat down and just felt inspired to write a song. In fact, uh, one of the songs I wrote one time, it came in 10 minutes. Ten minutes. Now, some people take time to write songs, and I'm not saying that's not great and they can't be awesome. But I'll just tell you this. My personal opinion, the best songs are inspired. And I think the best book you could ever read is inspired. And it was inspired by the best author, and that is God. Can I have an amen? And so uh, God spoke and men wrote because it was inspired by God. Now, why did it have to be written? Some people say, why is it so important that something be written? Why can't we just... You know, have the verbal, you know, why couldn't why could we just be okay with just Jesus? You know, and I think you believe this on your own, that uh, there are certain things that need to be written. Uh, if you were to have an agreement between you and another person, a pact between you and another person, a contract between you and another person, you'd want it to be written. You'd want it to be written down because something was so important. In fact, you've, you've even said this at some time in your life. If you're of age, you'd say, would, would you please put that in writing? Has anybody ever said that? Would you please put that in writing before? Because it's important that it be written down. Now, different times people have thought through the centuries, well, if Jesus is in fact the word, if Jesus is in fact the inspired word of God, and we'll show you that in the scriptures in just a minute, why, do, why, do, why can't it just be verbal? Why couldn't it just be what Jesus said and the testimony of that um, be enough? It's important that it be written. <clears throat> There's a... There's an example I could, I could tell you where a student uh, was studying to get his Ph.D. He was a, he was a doctoral student, and he was doing uh, his dissertation before his professor. And he, while he, he was watching the process, and he had issues with the process, the dissertation process, the presentation of his dissertation. And so he violated kind of the rules, and he basically, he basically would make these profound statements in his dissertation, and he would say, as told to me by, and then he would reference some encounter he had with somebody, a testimonial with a person, a verbal conversation. As told to me by the waiter that I met at such and such a restaurant. As told to me by the, the bellman at the hotel. As told to me by the cashier at such and such a store. And the professor is listening to this, and he says, hold up, hold up, hold up. You can't do that. You can't you can't bring your dissertation without qualifying these statements you're making with documentation, written documentation and footnoting. And, 
And the student got upset. Why is, why is that necessary? Why can't I just tell you what somebody else said? Why is that not enough? That testimony, why wouldn't that be enough? And they battled back and forth. And finally, the professor said, okay, fine, fine, proceed. And he went through his whole process. And at the end, all the students, when they were done, they all dispersed. And the professor, months later, was calling the different students to tell them if they got their PhD or not. And so he called this one particular student where this this event took place, and he says, I want you to know something. I want you to know you passed. Uh, you are going to receive your PhD, but we're not going to give it to you in writing. <laughs> You're just going to have to take our word for it. <laughs> How many know it's important to have something in writing, okay? Some things we need in writing. And so way more important than your PhD is to see that God's word be written down. Can I have an amen? Okay, here's the second thing. So you got to know the Bible. You also got to know the facts. Everybody say you got to know the facts. All right, why? Because this book's amazing if you read it. This book will change your life if you'll read it. I wish I, could, I wish I could convey, convince, do something to motivate you. Somebody asked me in the last service, well, where do I even begin? I don't even know. And so I'll simply say, don't begin in Genesis. Because <clears throat> by the time you get to Leviticus, start reading about skin diseases, you're going to say, I'm out. I'm out, okay? You want... So if you want to understand the whole Bible, look at it through the lens of the New Testament. Old Testament concealed and contained, New Testament explained and, and, and revealed. So you always want to understand better the Old Testament through the lens of the New. Start in Matthew, begin to read through. If you had to pick one book in the Bible to read, I'd probably say the Gospel of John or the Book of Romans. The Gospel of John will have a clear understanding of Jesus' life and the Gospel. And the Book of Romans is kind of a treatise for the Christian experience, the Christian faith. But um, is everybody getting something out of this so far? Okay, so the book's amazing. If you read it, it'll transform you. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, a great theologian, he said, a book that's, that's uh, the Bible, a person who owns a Bible that's falling apart is usually a person who's not falling apart. So in other words, you read it a lot and it starts falling apart. That means your life's all put together. It will change your life. Now, I'm not going to disparage other religions, but I'm going to make some comparisons quickly uh, you, because sometimes I don't think we realize some facts and some contrasts. But if you were to uh, study the book of Buddha, which was a series of sermons written by one man. If you were to study the book of Quran, which uh, contests the scriptures and doesn't agree with the resurrection of Jesus and different things. Uh, if, you were to, if you were to study that, it was written by one man after he died. The word is posthumously. After he died, it was written. But when we talk about the Bible, everybody say the Bible. All right, the Bible was uh, written over 15 to 1600 year period in over a dozen countries, <coughs> excuse me, three continents, by the way, three languages as well, by people from all walks of life. Uh, there are about 40 writers, but only one author because it was inspired. 40 authors, three continents, three languages, over 1600 year period, yet, look, with a single consistent thread throughout all these books. Now, I call this, this is my terminology, other people call it this too, the plot of the Bible. And if you're interested, I did a series in 2017, a four-week series called Text. God sends text messages to us through the Word of God. In one of those messages, I did an entire overview of the Bible, book by book by book, and reveal within that the message of each one of those books, the plot of the Scriptures. Ultimately, in the entire Bible, the message of the Bible is about one person, the subject being Jesus, a redeemer. Kinsman, redeemer, in one, in one book of the Bible, it's talking about Jesus. 
uh, the Messiah is talking about Jesus. And then there's really one verb in the Bible, and that's God gave. And you see that through the Bible. So if you're interested in just seeing kind of this common thread, this, this consistent thread through the Bible, go to text series uh, 2017 on our website. They began writing the Bible in about the mid-14th century B.C. Now, part, just pause for a second. That means 1,400 years before, right, uh, uh, Jesus' life, B.C., the, the Old Testament was constructed in about 1,000 to 1,100 years. So the inscription process of the Old Testament was about 1,000 to 1,100 years. Then you have what's called the 400 silent years. That's between the, New, the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's where the, the non-canonized books of the Bible are, which is another whole discussion, but I talk about this in another series. But that's in the middle, the intertestament books. Then you have the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. That took about 50 to 75 years for that to take place. What's interesting about that is these were eyewitness people. This, this wasn't something that was written posthumously after somebody died. This wasn't written 400 years after Jesus was resurrected. No, these are people that were, that were there or knew somebody who was there. Does that make sense to everybody? It would be like me saying it would be really easy to falsify the scriptures if it wasn't written in such a short period of time. In other words, if I was to say to you, hey, remember in the 90s when Russia attacked the United States? You'd be like, what? That didn't happen, right? But if I said to you, do you remember when Silence of the Lambs came out in the, in the 90s? You'd be like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Because, because it's within your time period. You, can't, you could easily falsify or eradicate the consistency of something if it was in a certain period of time. And so the scriptures have been validated over and over again. So 14th century B.C. and continued into the late 1st century A.D., the collusion factor, this is basically saying the ability to falsify something uh, would be so easy, but it's a miracle it couldn't be done. It's just a miracle it couldn't be done. It's amazing. And so this is a phenomenal, phenomenal book that you guys are, um, uh, or should be holding in your hand or have in your hand on a daily basis. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant is um, 39 books, 66 books in the whole Bible. I learned this when I was in middle school. My daddy made me learn this kind of stuff. 39 books in the Old Testament. There's the historical books, the books of the law. Uh, you have the poetic books, you know, Job all the way to Song of Solomon. You have the prophets, 17 of those, the major and minor prophets. In the New Testament, 27 books, you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. My dad used to say, hold the horse till I get on, so he remembered it. That <laughs> You have the synoptic Gospels in there. Uh, you have the book of Acts, which is a history of the New Testament church, which is very relevant to our lives today. You have the epistles. It's made up of 20 different letters to the church. Uh, kind of like uh, instructional letters, uh, how the church is supposed to work, and, and very, very helpful. And then you have the book of Revelation, not Revelations. It's one of my pet peeves, so I always say that. Revelation, um, that is kind of uh, the prophecies yet to be fulfilled, uh, a, lot of, uh, co- uh, a lot of content about the end times, what's called eschatological events, and, and then eternity. An amazing, amazing book. But what is most amazing about the Bible to me is prophecy. One of the most amazing validators to the Christian faith is fulfilled prophecy. Is everybody still with me? There's actually 2,500 prophecies in the scriptures. 2,000 have already been fulfilled. Just let that sink in for a second. No major religion can say that. No major religion has these prophetic statements like Christianity does. So there's 500 still waiting to be accomplished, 2,000 already. Let me give you a couple highlights. One, the, most, the, the, most in, the most famous prophecies are messianic prophecies. That, in other words, 
things that are prophesied about a Messiah who would come. So hundreds of years before Jesus came on the earth, the way he came on the earth, what, what he did when he was on the earth, things were prophesied. Isaiah and Micah, 500 to 700 years before Christ's birth, um, <coughs> Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be born of a virgin. How? Okay? Micah prophesied that the city that Jesus would, the town that Jesus would be born in. He lived in Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem. How did, how did they know that hundreds of years before? Just food for thought. David prophesied about the crucifixion of the Savior. Now, that's pretty cool, but what's even cooler is crucifixion didn't even exist in David's time. 500 years before crucifixion even came, even was documented, recorded anywhere in human history, uh, David was describing crucifixion of the Savior. Prophesied. It's amazing. So those are some messianic prophecies. One that... Um, is out of the book of Daniel. Daniel is considered uh, an incredible leader in the scriptures. And if you've ever read Daniel, it's an amazing book. And some of you know the stories of Daniel, but you probably don't know the prophecies of Daniel. So the first half of the book of Daniel, you have the exile and this cool stuff that happens. And, you know, he eats, you know, fruits and vegetables or whatever, vegetables and pulse and things like that. And he performs 10 times better than everybody else. So some great stories. And there's the Daniel and the lion's den and all this kind of stuff. And and, and, and old Nebi Nebi is, you know, this amazing story with Nebuchadnezzar. We call him Nebi Nebi. I'm just seeing if you guys are with me. Some of you guys are just really slow in the draw here. But but then later on, there's these there's these dreams and, and, and Daniel interprets them and there's these prophecies. And and one of the prophecies are, that he uh, talks about is uh, he, he tells about an empire that's going to dominate the earth. And 500 years before Christ, Daniel has this prophecy that this, this empire would dominate the earth. And then that empire would, would suddenly something would happen. Uh, it would, there would be a, the empire would be suddenly cut off, and that empire would divide into four. And then four would eventually come back to two, and then one, and then the Messiah would come. That, that's what he prophesied. That's the summary. Now, that's what happened because 200 years approximately after Daniel prophesied that, uh, Alexander the Great shows up and dominates the world. And suddenly at 32 years of age, he dies. Uh, there's, no, there's no conclusive evidence as to how he died. Some people believe it's typhoid fever. Some people believe it could have been abuse of his, you know, his lifestyle abuse and his liver, you know, cirrhosis to the liver. Nobody really knows. The point is he died suddenly, and his four generals divided the world into four different empires. And then eventually that became two um, uh, different empires. Uh, it kind of reduced to the Seleucid and Ptolemic Empire. And then those two down into the Roman Empire. And then Jesus showed up. How did that happen? And historians have had their minds blown at the accuracy of the prophecies of Daniel and have tried to pick it apart, try to find some inconsistency within it, try to find something wrong with it. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, under, under, uh, under you know, kind of a microscope, trying to figure out what was wrong, they haven't been able to do it. They haven't been able to do it. The, this is a big word, but the verisimilitude, the verisimilitude, basically it means it can appear like it's right, but when you look a little bit closer, there's inconsistencies. It would be like watching a movie, and you're watching the Roman, uh, some kind of Roman empire. You're watching, uh, you know, some kind of a mythological, not mythological, but some kind of uh, New Testament type time period, and you're seeing this Roman centurion, and he's got an Apple watch on. Like, it wouldn't fit. <laughs> what they're looking for is those kind of inconsistencies. Uh, you said it's 100 miles to the north, but actually it was 1,000 miles to the, to the south. They can't find anything wrong 
in these uh, prophecies. Amazing. And so that's how the Bible has been for hundreds of years under tremendous, tremendous scrutiny. In fact, um, there is a a um, theologian, uh, his name is Dr. Bruce uh, Metzger, and, and he, he said this, he said, after you take uh, the 20,000 lines of the New Testament, it is safe for any scholar to say that 99.6% of the Bible has been corroborated by other historical documents. This is a highly scrutinized but uh, corroborated by, which is cool, historical documents, something that you can trust. History confirms it. 2,000 years after the life of Jesus, 3,500 years after the inscription process began. That means taking uh, divine revelation uh, when it was communicated by God and putting it into writing. That's what the inscription process is. No book has been more studied. No book has been more scrutinized, yet always proven true like the Bible. There are 54 messianic prophecies. That's prophecies related to Jesus with 300 scriptural references. Uh, what was done to verify and validate the messianic prophecies is they took eight of those messianic prophecies out and they were able to find uh, hard historical evidence, historical, not biblical, evidence that those prophecies were fulfilled. Those messianic prophecies were fulfilled. In fact, they did a study at Edmonton University uh, a professor presented these findings um, to, with, with, uh, uh, to the American Association of Scientific Association. Why did they do that? To validate, to see that it was dependable, that you could trust it, that it was real. And, of course, it came back it was. And what they said was, this is amazing, is the mathematical probability that these eight prophecies actually happened would be 1 to 10 to the 17th power. Okay, so, so when you're getting ready to try to, you know, maybe you wanna, you're, you're going to try to find out your odds on something, one out of ten, you can kind of understand that. But one to ten to the 17th power, that's a one with 18 zeros after. We don't have numbers like that in the world. Just, just, so, so the students, kind of like us, we listen to that and we can't really qu kind of grasp the, the odds that these things could happen and be fulfilled with such accuracy and veracity. And so the professor produced an illustration to try to describe what would, what would that look like. And so these students, 600 students, uh, uh, were part of this, this particular study. And so they're trying to figure out what does 1 to the 10 to the 17th power look like uh, regarding these prophecies. And so he said, if you took silver dollars and you were to cover the state of Texas with silver dollars, from one end to the other, from north to south, from the east to the west, he said that wouldn't take care of all of the silver dollars in that number. You'd have to stack those silver dollars two feet high to cover the state of Texas with silver dollars. That's how big this number is. Now, if you were, now and then he said, to, to the probability of what happened in the Messianic prophecy prophecy come to pass is like one of those silver dollars being marked and randomly put within the state. You blindfold somebody and you drop them in the middle of Texas and say, you have to find and pick that one marked silver coin. That's the probability illustrated. And Jesus didn't just fulfill eight. He fulfilled 54 of those. So I'm just trying to get you to see the Bible is amazing. And what happens is people have done what I'm doing. Some care, some don't care, and I get that. But it is the most despised by some, derided, denied, disputed, dissected, uh, uh, you know, outlawed, destroyed, burnt book in all of human history. 
But isn't it amazing that it is the best-selling book of all time, over 5 billion copies, 100 million copies per year. It is the most read book in all of human history. It is known to influence architecture, uh, music, um, 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 uh, obviously um, our culture and, and art and all those kind of things for centuries. The Bible says this about itself. The grass will wither and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord, what? It endures forever. There was a great philosopher in the early 17th century named Voltaire. He's a French philosopher, but he was an atheist. And he, he said this. Isn't this interesting? He said in his time period, within 100 years, the Bible will be forgotten. You know the only thing that's been forgotten? That quote right there. That quote. And if you don't think God has a sense of humor, uh, that quote has not only been forgotten, but when Voltaire died, his home became uh, the headquarters for the French Bible Society and a printing press for Bibles, thousands of Bibles that have gone around the world. Voltaire, can you imagine God? He's like, Voltaire, you'll be gone and I'll be making your house a printing press. I mean, that... That is no joke right there. That, that's the God I serve, okay? So you got to know the Bible. you got to know the facts. And number three, you got to know the author. Everybody say, know the author. <clears throat> this, is, this is important. Now, I, the reason I trust the Bible's truth is because I know the author. I know the author of the best-selling book in all of human history. And you can too. And you can too. It changes everything when you know the author. If you want to trust that the Bible's true, get to know the author. If you, if you did... I promise you, you'd have a different view. And the reason for that is because I've given you a certain amount of scientific, historical, prophetic evidence with support, resources where you can go and check it out for yourself, books that you can read from people who were skeptics and atheists, uh, and, and et cetera, et cetera. We've been doing that for an entire series. But here's the deal. At some point, you're going to have to take a step of faith. Not a leap, just a step of faith because the Bible ultimately points to a person. He, the Bible points to a person. It's always about knowing the author. In fact, when Jesus was talking to religious people of his time, when he was here on earth, uh, they didn't get it. In fact, in John chapter 5, verse 39, this is what it says. Jesus speaking to these religious people. You carefully study the scriptures. They're, they're like memorizing the law, putting little, you know, little uh, you know, affirmations on their body, say, look at how much I know, how much I know, and walking around with all this stuff, because you think they give you eternal life, but they don't. They do, in fact, talk about me, though. And ironically, Jesus was right in front of them, in essence, saying, I'm right here, but you're missing it. So when you're reading this Bible, it's not just to study the scriptures diligently so that you can, you know, look smart and, and, and be like a professional apologist and be able to have awesome answers. No, it's so you can get to know the author. It's all about him at the end of the day. And, and, and I hope you guys see this clearly. In John chapter 1, I told you this earlier. The reason I trust Jesus is because Jesus is the Bible. He is the Word. The Bible says in the beginning, that's the beginning of all, was the Word. Who's the Word? Jesus. I'll show you in a second. And that word was with God. So you can see the Trinity unpacked here. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the word was God. So he's just saying, before Jesus became flesh, he was the word. That was his, that was his, that was his description. Then, here's what I want you to write down. We know the Bible is true because the word became flesh and dwelled among us on earth. To support that, 
we see further down in John chapter 1 in verse 14, it says that. It says, the word became flesh. This is known as the incarnation theologically. And made his dwelling among us. So God came from, we used to sing the song, you came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, okay. When I lift your name, I used to play that. I used to play that when I was leading worship here, awesomely. Um, I used to move the C chord up, make it kind of an open D, and then I'd bring it back. Anyway. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of, I love this part here, grace and truth. So we don't ever learn what we're learning without grace. We don't ever learn what we're learning without also embracing the prickly truth so we can be changed more into his likeness. Can I have an amen? This cool. What's cool about Jesus is if he was a fake, a phony, if he was a lunatic or a liar, not Savior and Lord, he could have said some things differently to kind of cover his tracks or to kind of hide the reality, um, prepare the way for the scrutiny that would come. He could have said to everybody that when he was alive, he could have said, I will rise from the dead. And then he could have said, spiritually. And the whole story would have been different. Because when they went to, you know, look for his body, well, they would have found it. Because, and then we would have said, see, he didn't die physically, bodily. He, do, he, died, he died spiritually. But he didn't say that. Jesus went way out on a limb. Jesus walked the plank. He said something nobody's ever said before. Many people said they'll die for somebody who's done something wrong. Nobody said they would die for everybody who did everything wrong and then said he'd come back on the third day bodily. But Jesus said that. And what's interesting is Muhammad is still in the tomb. What's interesting is Buddha is still in the tomb. But when you go looking for Jesus after 2,000 years, nobody has ever been able to find the body of Jesus Christ. The reason I follow him is because he said what he said, he did what he did, he died, and he rose from the dead. Can I have an amen out there? So, so as I wrap this up for you, let me, let me put some of the additional information that we would have out there regarding uh, the Bible into some questions for you to ponder. And I want you to just let these, let these questions impact you because every single one of these questions is connected to a biblical prophecy, every one of them. And you could research these. So question three, how did he arrange to be born in a specific family that would be of the lineage of David, for example, as you begin to study? How did he arrange to be born in a specific city that his family wasn't from? His family's from Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem. How did that happen? Oh, there's a census. And this. How did he do all that? And yet it was told, foretold. How did he do that? How did he arrange his own death by crucifixion with two others as prophesied? How did he orchestrate this so perfectly? How did he arrange for his executioners to gamble over his clothing? In the book of Psalms, I believe, chapter 22, and, uh, I think verse 18, it talks about they would gamble over his clothes th a thousand years before it ever happened. This was, being, this was being prophesied. How did he arrange to be betrayed in advance by Judas, one of the twelve? How did he arrange to be killed, crucified, on the exact day when the Jews offered a spotless lamb for their sins at Passover? And bring all those things together and into fruition and perfect synergy. How did he do that? 
How did he arrange for the executioners to break the legs, which was a regular practice of the Romans, of both criminals, but not his own? And the Bible prophesied not one of his bones would be broken. Hundreds of years before. How did he do that? How did he arrange to come back on the exact day he said he would? On the third day, I will rise. I'll tell you how he did that, because he's God. Come on, can we give the Lord a big praise for that? It's because he's God. He's God. Will you stand to your feet and let me pray for you, everybody? Let me pray for you. There are 66 books over 1,600 years with 40 different writers. It's amazing. What's amazing is they are consistent with history. They're congruent with the truth. And they all converge into one person, Jesus Christ, whom to know or write is life eternal. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to pray for you where you are. I want to tell you something. He, if he arranged all that... Listen, listen to my voice. Every head bowed, every eye closed. If he arranged all that, he could arrange to change your life. He could do that. If he arranged all of that, how could he not arrange to help me with my life? And he is. I think he's arranged for you to be here right now. I think he's arranged for you to be within the sound of my voice and within just a whisper of the Spirit of God. And I believe he's drawing you to himself. I believe that with all my heart. There's some people in this room that I was praying for. And you know that God spared you. He gave you a second chance on life. Maybe some of you more than once. Maybe it wasn't a physical death, but there was a certain reality, a certain place you came in your life and you realized, you know what, I can't live life the way everybody else is. I can't live the life the way I once did. I can't do it the way I did it before. I'm not going to have one foot in the world and one foot kind of going towards God. God's knocking on the door of your heart and he's drawing you to himself. And he's, I, I know why he spared you. That's why you're here. I can tell you why he spared you. He spared you so you would live your life 100% for him because he gave 100% for you. And again, you might feel like he's stirring you right now. Some kind of stirring in your heart. I believe that's God. And so I want to help you. I want to help you right where you are. I want to help you. I want to lead you to the answer. I want to lead you to the solution to all of your problems. And his name is personified in a person. It's a person. His name is Jesus. And if you know you need to be saved today, I want you to, without shame, with courage, I want you to, with every head bowed, every eye closed, but just between me and you and God, you should be proud to associate with him. I want you to raise your hand and say, that's me. I want to be saved today. I don't want to go another day. Good night. Good night. Good night. God bless you. Good. All over the room. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen people, sixteen, seventeen people said yes. Eighteen people right there. God bless you, sir, for your courage. Amen. Amen. You can put your hand down. Just put, everybody, put your hand on your heart. I'm just going to lead you in a prayer. Just say, God, come on, everybody say this together. Say, God, I'm tired of playing games. I'm tired of living on the fence. I'm crossing over to the other side. I thank you, God, for forgiving me of my sin. Today is the day of salvation for me. I receive Jesus as my Lord and as my Savior. I believe today you are saving me. And let me pray for you, Father, for every person who prayed that prayer. I believe that if he can arrange for all the things that have happened through history, he can arrange for our story to be a new story. A new chapter, a new beginning, God. He was simply waiting for us to ask. And I thank you for all the people that called out to God, that said yes to God today. I pray that, they, that the decision they made would manifest into life change and life transformation. And even if they don't feel it, your word tells us 
Uh, I pray that you did. But if you didn't feel, your word tells us if we call upon the name of the Lord, we are saved. And the Bible also says the angels rejoice in heaven because another sinner has come home. And we rejoice with those angels in this room and with everybody that said yes to God. Can we do that right now by giving God a big hand for those people that said yes to him in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Wow.